Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. If we haven't met, I'm Josh. I'm one of the leaders around here. And if you've been kind of in and out or you're just joining us for the first time, tonight we are actually reaching the end of our three-month vision series, Practicing the Way. So if you've missed anything along the way, please, by all means, go back, catch up on the podcast. Um, Throughout the series, we have discussed in detail the way in which we hope to sort of build and rebuild Van City around this idea of apprenticeship to Jesus of Nazareth. And as you should all well know by now, the goal of every apprentice to Jesus is threefold. What's the first one? Be with Jesus. Yes. And second? Become like Jesus. And finally? Do what Jesus did. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you, guys. I feel like it wasn't all in vain. Of course, uh, we should also understand by now that in order to realize these three lifelong goals of apprenticeship, something in and about us has to change. Not the sort of simple change evoked by way of a TED Talk or a uh, a bestseller self-help sort of book. Um, We need a radically comprehensive overhaul of our entire person. The authors of the New Testament describe this process with a single word, and that is transformation. And we've spent a great deal of the fall talking about this idea of spiritual formation. Now, we are all being shaped into someone, whether we'd like to be or not. And these shaping agents are the stories that we believe, our habits, our relationships, and it all takes place in the context of our environment. So consider for a moment the ways in which you're different than you were, say, 10 years ago, for better or for worse. You may have matured, hopefully, and and to some degree. Um, Your worldview may have shifted one way or the other. Your habits may look quite different than they once did. Now, imagine the inevitability of passing time as a complex system of rivers and streams, right? These factors, the stories that you believe, your habits, your relationships, your environment, They are a current that is working you in a very specific direction so that in another 10 years, you will be a very specific and new version of you. Now, apprenticeship to Jesus is about working against that current. And the apprentice of Jesus rejects this sweep of passive influence by utilizing deliberate counter-formational agents to replace them. So, rather than the stories we believe, the disciple of Jesus fills his his or her mind with teaching. Rather than habits, we use the spiritual discipline or the practices of Jesus. Rather than arbitrary relationships, the disciple of Jesus opts to live in community with the family of God all of this unfolds in the environment of the Holy Spirit. It happens over a long period of time, and it happens throughout the ups and downs or hard knocks of life. So to continue with the metaphor, these tools are the boat and the oars with which we row against the the current of formation and toward transformation. So the way we will realize that effort together as a church will be by practicing the way of Jesus together in Vancouver. Beginning this month, actually, we will take on one practice or spiritual discipline every two months. Um, We will begin each practice with a teaching here on a Sunday night. Then you'll go into your Van City communities with a practice-based curriculum that we've developed over a long period of time with our friends at Bridgetown Church. And over the span of the next year or two, we will work our way through the seven core practices and disciplines of Jesus, which are silence and solitude, prayer, fasting, 
Bible reading, Sabbath, simplicity, and living in community. And we will also go through the five key principles of emotional health, which are to go back, to go forward, know yourself, to know God and others, forgive and be forgiven, embrace grieving and loss, and develop a rule of life. More, much more on that to come. This is an exciting new time for us as a young church. The ideas that we've been unpacking these past few months have been the product of years of study and discussion and uh, arguing and debate and trial and error, beta testing behind the scenes back when Van City was just an idea long before we even had a gathering of our own. And tonight, to conclude our vision series, I want to talk about one very real contingency that could sabotage this vision of ours. And it may not be what you think. So to get there, let's begin by reading from Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 28. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you think back to a couple of weeks prior, the invitation to apprentice Jesus is predicated on the idea of self-denial. Remember, Jesus had this hardcore line about whoever wants to follow me must take up their cross and die to themselves every single day in Luke's language. Of course, that's not the only way that Jesus words his invitation. Here, we see Jesus extend a personalized invitation to those who are tired. To those who are burnt out and worn down, the overstressed, the anxious, the fidgeting rabble of the discontented. And the cultural climate being what it is, it's not all that presumptuous to assume the majority of us here this evening fit that description, at least in varying degrees. Most of us, I actually suspect, function with an ever-present low-grade sense of fatigue and anxiety that rarely subsides altogether. Eugene Peterson paraphrases what Jesus just said this way. He writes, well, that's okay. I've got it on my own thing here. You guys, you'll just have to listen to me. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This is Jesus' invitation to an unhurried life, a life in which one wakes with clarity, with serenity, with focus and purpose for the coming day and constant awareness of the presence of God. Of course, many, if not most of us, even those of us experienced in following Jesus, hear such a thing and yet are completely unable to relate. Most of us think, man, that's funny because I follow Jesus and I am tired. I am worn out. I am burned out on religious effort. This has not been how my apprenticeship to Jesus has worked itself out. And of course, if that's you, you are not alone in this. But tonight, I'm going to argue that this passage, these words of Jesus, have the potential to change things in your life. Now, it stands to reason that if you've spent any amount uh, of time in or around the church, you're already familiar with this passage. I realize as much. But something is hidden within the text, something that philosopher Dallas Willard calls the secret of the easy yoke. About this passage, he wrote this, 
in this truth, these words of Jesus, lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as he, Jesus, lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle, following in his steps, cannot be equated with behaving as, as he did when he was on the spot. To live as Christ is to live as he did all his life. Our mistakes is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. It's a strategy bound to fail. There's a simple yet profound truth at work here. A friend of mine summarizes it, summarizes it this way. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Because the way of Jesus is just that. It's a way of life. It's not simply a system of beliefs or ethics. This is what Jesus is up to with this imagery of the yoke. One of the top scholars on Matthew's gospel puts it this way. A yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to his Sermon on the Mount, his yoke, or his set of teachings, will develop us in a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. Life itself carries a sort of emotional weight. So often, the disciple of Jesus begins to feel like uh, little more than a, an additional weight on life's already crushing load. That is, to supplement the insanity of your already chaotic lifestyle, you must also now read your Bible every day and live in community and pray and so on down the list. But pay, pay close attention to the specificity of Jesus' metaphorical imagery. A yoke is an instrument used to tie uh, one ox to another in order to you know, carry a load, in this case a cart or a plow. And Jesus is inviting you and I to come alongside him and to match the pace of our lives with his. And he'll do the heavy lifting and we get to walk beside him and get this, in Jesus' language, it will be easy, he says. And again, the way of Jesus is not a set of ideas or a list of commands. It is a lifestyle. This is, of course, ironic when we think of the way that the church, we the church, have spent um, so, little, so much time talking about theology and ethics compared to how little we spend talking about lifestyle. The most difficult approach to discipleship is to simply add it to an already overloaded lifestyle with little to no lifestyle change. That is, continue in being overbusy and materialistic and stressed out and individualistic, and emotionally unhealthy, and undisciplined, and digitally addicted, and be a disciple of Jesus as well. The secret of the easy yoke is that when you adopt the overall lifestyle of Jesus, when you begin the practices of Jesus, when you begin to experience formation, which is hard, yes, but when you do, the way of Jesus, and indeed life itself, becomes increasingly easy. Does this make 
since at least theoretically so far. Tracking? Yeah? Okay. Now here's the catch. In order to actually do this, to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus, you have to sacrifice. And this means slowing down in the same ways that Jesus himself slowed down by sacrificing sources of needless hurry in order to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. When you traverse the pages of the four biographies of Jesus, the Gospels, it becomes increasingly evident all the time that Jesus was not in a hurry, sometimes frustratingly so to the people around him. I read this story this week about a pastor in California named uh, John Ortberg, and he wrote about this conversation that he had with his mentor, which is one of my theological heroes, Dallas Willard. I I say a thing about him once or twice. And Ortberg, he was mired in this particularly stressful season of life, so he calls his mentor on the phone, and he details his situation, and he asks for advice. I think that he said, uh, he asked him, how do I experience the life of Jesus in this chaotic season of my life? And apparently Willard was silent for a long time before he finally answered, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And Ortberg wrote that down. That sounded smart, you know. Sure, I'll remember that. And then he asked, okay, great, what else? And Willard thought for a while again and then said, there is nothing else. And this fascinates me because one reason is that I doubt many of us would cite hurry as our great obstacle in spiritual formation or as a threat to the way of Jesus. Certainly we would list things like, you know, the political climate of our time or secularization or pornography or or racial tensions, all very real threats and challenges to the way of Jesus. But hurry? And yet in my own life, especially over the last few years, I have come to see that Willard is right. And I have, in my own personal view, a very high view of spiritual warfare, meaning that I believe that Satan and that demons have a very real level of personal autonomy to affect our lives and the world around us, things like sickness and suffering and temptation and death and evil, even natural disasters to a certain extent. And yet I often fail to see the evil one in an overcrowded calendar that steals my attention from my family. I forget that he waits for me on my smartphone. I I neglect to notice him as he moves the hand of the clock at breakneck speed as I catapult from one thing to another to another to another. And the source of our collective busyness might be admirable. It might be something like dedication to hard work. Or it could be an important project that demands a lot of our time or attention. A sort of too much of a good thing type of scenario. But in my experience, that's actually kind of rare. Far more often, and maybe this is the pessimist in me, I suspect the source of our busyness is almost entirely asinine and stupid. Um, When we were beta testing some of the practices of Jesus' curriculum behind the scenes, this is over a year ago now, I remember having this conversation with someone who became frustrated and were prepared to throw their hands up and forfeit because they were unable to commit to just one more thing in an already insane schedule. Now, about a half hour prior to this, this same person was celebrating the fact that now that they were caught up on The Bachelorette, they could continue binge-watching Gilmore Girls. Um, Catholic writer Ronald Rollheiser puts it this way, Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate with which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion, pathological busyness, 
distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. So the kind of things that Rollheiser is talking about, hurry, over-busyness, distraction, digital addiction, asinine nonsense, are just, are, they're the great threat that most of us face in our discipleship to Jesus. And when you plot the course of technological development throughout history, there's a great irony at work because in the 60s, Futurists and science fiction authors suspected that by the year 2000, if not shortly thereafter, humans would work less than ever before. Um, the great struggle of the future, they thought, would be an overabundance of leisure in direct proportion to the rise of labor-saving devices. And while technology has obviously benefited Western society in a great myriad of incredible ways, much of it comes at a great cost. Social media networks designed to connect people and share their lives have driven people further apart than ever before. And rather than sharing life, we share almost entirely fabricated veneers of the lives we'd like others to believe that we have. Smartphones designed to increase the efficiency in which we conduct our lives have simply drawn us to the smartphones themselves. Um, nearly all of history's recorded music is available to stream free of charge at the push of a button and we listen to and seek out less music than ever before. The increase in communicative technology has reduced meaningful communication somehow. The increase in labor-saving devices has increased labor and distraction while reducing efficiency and leisure. Availability has destroyed interest and attention spans on a global level. Oh, the irony. Uh, in an essay published in the New York Times titled, I Used to Be a Human Being, Andrew Sullivan wrote this. The Judeo-Christian tradition recognized a critical distinction and tension between noise and silence, between getting through the day and getting a grip on one's whole life. The Sabbath, the Jewish tradition co-opted by Christianity, was the collective imposition of relative silence, a moment of calm to reflect on our lives under the light of eternity. It helped define much of Western public life once a week for centuries, only to dissipate with scarcely a passing regret into the commercial cacophony of the past couple of decades. It reflected a now battered belief that a sustained spiritual life is simply unfeasible for most mortals without these refuges from noise and work to buffer us and remind us who we really are. But just as modern street lighting has slowly blotted the stars from the visible skies, so too have cars and planes and factories and flickering digital screens combined to rob us of a silence that was previously regarded as integral to the health of human imagination. Obvious a target, though it might be, uh, much of this came, to, uh, this, this technological doomsday talk <laughs> came to um, horrifying climax with the release of a product in 2007. Does anyone guess what that product was? The, uh, the, the, the iPhone, actually, the iPhone. One recent study revealed that the average smartphone user touches their phone some 2,617 times a day. They spend an unthinkable 2.5 hours every day across some 76 smartphone sessions. Another study suggested that young adults spend around five hours a day on their phones during an average of 85 sessions. Of course, amongst those participating in this pretty wide study, no one realized how much of their lives were trickling down the drain by using their phones. Many psychologists insist that for the vast majority of Americans, smartphone use is a classifiable compulsion 
They just have to tech, you know, check their text or their Instagram feed or their Facebook updates and so on for that fresh hit of dopamine. For many, the behavior may be more accurately described as an addiction. Here's one general uh, definition. Addiction is the relentless pull to a substance or an activity that becomes so compulsive it ultimately interferes with everyday life. By this standard psychology today definition of the term, nearly everyone I know is addicted to their phone or to the internet. When observing the apparent inability of the modern American to stave off distraction for even more than three minutes, comedian, comedian Adam Conover said this, you're getting bored. Your brain is beginning to itch inside your skull, begging for a morsel of distraction from the internet. The obstacles are mounting. That was an email. That was a new post on Instagram. That was a celebrity who just died on Twitter. Maybe it was Shaq. Everyone is tweeting about Shaq's death and you're missing it. Are you comfortable with that? A decade of instantaneous entertainment has made you so mentally soft and fat that you find even 10 seconds of boredom is excruciating. How sad. The truth is, you're weaker now because attention is the scalpel you use to cut away the fat from your life. But the internet has robbed you of it, and now instead of choosing what you experience, you drift from tab to tab full of content you hate, like a hungry ghost who will never be full. Your life is filtering through your fingers, and you are doing nothing to stop it to regain control over the one truly non-renewable resource in your life, your time. Uh, one morning this week as I was writing this teaching, I was sitting at a coffee shop watching this young boy wait for his mom. He was maybe six or seven years old. I'm bad at guessing that even though I have kids. And uh, the boy entered with his mother who was carrying this small crate of pastries. She stepped behind the counter and asked the boy to take a seat and wait for her. Um, the, and then the boy just sat down at a nearby table. And he was there for maybe a half hour or so. And he sat at the table. He stared off into space. He kicked his legs back and forth. And he seemed to do little more than observe his surroundings and think. It was bizarre. He was the only human in the entire coffee shop, aside from the working baristas, who was not glued to a laptop or a smartphone for the duration of this, their visit. And sadly, I am including people that were seated together as couples or in a group. Um, in his letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul criticized disciples of Jesus for their slogan, I have the right to do anything. And he writes to them saying that even if that were true, not everything is beneficial. So why would you want to do everything? And Paul goes on to say that as a disciple of Jesus, I will not be mastered by anything. And many of us, I believe, are being mastered by our habits or by our phones or by some app. Thus, while technology is often very good, it is more often the problem itself than it is the solution to hurry. And hurry is a form of violence on the soul. Mental health professionals have begun to talk about something that they're loosely defining as hurry sickness right now that one author defined as a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. Dr. Philip Zimbardo went on to argue 
We can try to sustain living at breakneck speed, but sooner or later, physically, mentally, and or emotionally, we fall apart. Our bodies and minds weren't met to endure continual stress. Blood pressure spikes and eventually remains at an elevated level. Hearts wear out, we become irritable and easily angered, and we get upset, sometimes at the point of weeping from frustration and exhaustion. And then uh, Dr. Zimbardo went on to list three symptoms of what he called hurry sickness, and here's what he said. Number one, you move from one checkout line to another because it's shorter. Another symptom is that when you come to a stoplight, you count the cars ahead of you and change lanes. And then finally, you multitask to the point that you forget one of the tasks. Now, interestingly, apart from abuse and overuse, in and of itself, technology can, as a general rule, save time. I think we can all agree on that. For example, I can locate resources or plan a trip or organize my calendar or navigate a drive with far more efficiency with an iPhone than without one. In this way, it absolutely saves time. Believe me, I would be lost on every trip I've ever been on. In fact, with uh, someone talking to me about the directions, I'm mostly lost on every trip I've ever been on. So it's helping, at least to a certain extent. Man, when my dad used to plan vacations when I was a kid, he went to a travel agent and he sat down, he said, here's where I want to go. And then he had to go back there, and they got out a map and called airline companies and stuff. Now you just go boop, 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 boop. And this, you know, that saves time. Some of the stuff saves you a, a tremendous amount of time. So where does all that save time go? And the answer is that it goes elsewhere. We, we use it up on something else. And consequently, the solution to a busy life is not what many of us assume it might be, and that is more time. I'm constantly telling Abby that I wish there were more hours in the day or that I wish I didn't require sleep. It's so frustrating. Um, and of course, with more time or less need for sleep, I'd simply occupy, occupy those hours with more busyness. And then I'd want more time. The solution to an overbusy life then is to slow down and to make sacrifices, to prioritize, to learn how to say no. There's been a recent surge in secular thinking uh, around concepts like minimalism and essentialism in the workplace. Recently, I was listening to a podcast in which this young filmmaker was being interviewed by this novelist, and uh, he described the way in which he had deliberately reduced his circle of contacts to what he called a small core community. He'd turned down extra projects, he'd made more time for his emotional health and his family, and this interviewer found this sort of thinking and discipline absolutely extraordinary. He'd never heard of anything like it in his entire life. And this is what disciples of Jesus have been talking about and writing about for 2,000 years, from Jesus himself to the early fathers on into the modern and postmodern eras. I've dedicated an obvious bulk of teaching real estate to dis dissecting and critiquing the smartphone, because it's a, a near universal receptacle into which the vast majority of people in this room funnel their distraction and their hurry and their inability to seize control of their time and their pace of life. But, of course, we all realize that the phone itself is, is not the sickness. In fact, it stands to reason that a pers person or two in this room actually doesn't dedicate a ton of time to staring mindlessly at their phone. Many of you, when I said that, started to think to yourself, that's me. I hardly spend any time on my phone. Chances are you do. 
and you just don't realize it. In fact, if you go into the settings on that thing, it'll start to tell you some numbers you don't want to see. I encourage you checking that out. It's a very sobering experience. Um, but to those of you who are genuinely not addicted to your phone, meaning that you often leave home without it, you forget to check it for like a day at a time, you never take it out when you're in the company of other humans, the one or two of you that are healthy in this way, I would ask, what does distract you? What does hurry you? Is it some TV show or uh, some, a video game maybe, your social life, your friends, uh, a laptop, you know, I don't know, a website, Pinterest or Facebook, or is it travel or planning the next thing that you're going to do? Is it, is it music or a project that you're working on? Is, is it your spouse or your kids? And notice, none of these things are inherently bad. In fact, some are inherently wonderful, and yet all of them have the potential to rob you of the ability to slow down and simply rest in the presence of Jesus in order to be formed by him. For the disciple of Jesus, our defining narrative is the idea that we are made in the image of God, and yet we are made from the dust in the language of the scriptures, meaning we have such extraordinary God-imbued potential, and yet we are inherently limited in our ability to realize it. And the world around us has become a scrambling, snarling horde of, of grasping tentacles, pulling and dragging you in an infinite array of directions. Uh, live a life as exciting as that fabricated life some peer has created in their imaginary Instagram world. You know, visit every travel destination, read every book, remain updated on every feed. Here is every album that's ever been recorded. Here are thousands of films and TV shows available to stream. Everyone's watching them, but you, you're going to miss out on that conversation at work. Here is every bit of detailed information in the world, including but not limited to the release date of E.T. and the birthplace of Tom Petty. This is your life, and it's ending one moment at a time, and you can't do these things. Not all of them, not, not even most of them. In fact, you can't do many of them, <laughs> not well anyway. And this is one reason we see such focus and such pacing exemplified in the life of Jesus. Unhurried, Jesus often rejected opportunities and invitations to preach in front of wider audiences or to meet larger groups of people. Jesus sacrificed time with his disciples for time with the Father. And he sacrificed time with the crowds for time with the disciples. And he sacrificed opportunities to expand his mission in order to maintain the specificity of his mission as he understood it. And it is, of course, no coincidence that Jesus was unhurried. He was free from stress and anxiety. He readily demonstrated every fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And man, when I read about that and I read the way that Jesus moves with such focus from one thing to another, so paced that he spends entire nights alone with the Father and yet is able to accomplish the things the Father has set him out to do without becoming stressed or anxious, I think, man, I, I want that sort of life. And my guess is that I'm not uh, alone in that. And if you feel the same way, I have a few suggestions that may lead you in the right direction. They're not of my own design. Of, of course, you'll need to discern what works best for you and how to best apply it to your own life. But we do have uh, two millennia of ancient, ongoing, time-tested practices from the way of Jesus. So here are just a few in the effort to slow down your life. 
The first is this idea of Sabbath. Now we'll get to Sabbath in detail when we begin the practice of Jesus curriculum in our communities, but for now let me simply explain that Sabbath is basically just a full day set aside for rest and for worship and for celebration, all of those in a variety of ways. Sabbath is a day just to be rather than a day to do if that makes sense. So you, you essentially, maybe you'd turn off your phone or you'd dis- disconnect from the internet and instead you'd spend leisurely time reading the scriptures and in prayer or, or you'd eat lots of food with friends and with family and have a good time. You, you do the things that replenish your soul. Maybe you go on a long walk or you take a nap or you read a book, whatever it might be. This is one day of rest And it has this drastic effect on the other six days of your week when rightly practiced. And believe me, as someone who has has done both over long periods of time, there is something quite different about your week when you Sabbath versus your week when you do not Sabbath. Would you agree, Cam? Yeah, there's something drastically different. Another ancient practice is something called fixed hour prayer, or in other writings it's called something like the daily office. So like many of you, I'm sure I begin my mornings by reading the scriptures and by praying, but I also like to practice something called fixed hour prayer in which at a certain time of day, for me it's 2 p.m., a little you know, alarm goes off, and I stop what I'm doing, and I get away into a quiet space, and I take a moment to sort of reorient my person and my imagination and my thinking on Jesus. Just briefly, breathe deep, remember his presence, his proximity, Jesus is God with us, and be with God, and then go about the rest of my day. Even something that simple keeps you in a space, a proximity of the Spirit more so than if you do not do it. The next thing is simple living, or what is known outside of the church as minimalism or essentialism. This is the exhilarating and life-giving practice of stripping your life down to what actually matters to you. So you begin with your possessions, for instance. You might go through your home and get rid of everything that does not add value to your life. That expansive wardrobe that you don't need, that chest full of toys that your kids never open, those dozens of pairs of shoes that, you know, each go with one outfit or something like I'm told that ladies like shoes. I don't know. They make jokes about it. Maybe it's the comedians have lied to me. Um, So on down the list. Um, Sometimes people ask why I wear the same outfit every day or why it echoes in my apartment. This is why. Next, you move from your possessions to your hobbies and you look at your habits, the things that you spend all your time on, whether that's, you know, the obvious things like Instagram and uh, Netflix or whatever it might be, or it could be the extra outing with friends that you cram into an already packed calendar that's bursting at the seams, whatever it might be. And I'm not in, I'm in no way saying that possessions or hobbies or especially time with friends are bad in and of themselves. I'm saying that the idea is to sort of pare down Pair things down to what truly matters, the core practices and activities for a life well-lived, and then you learn to start saying no to the extra stuff. This may look different for you than for someone else. And finally, there are certain strides that one can make in an effort, in an effort to actually slow down the pace in which they live. Um, one way is to do what this kid that I watched on Wednesday morning do, which is just sit in a public place You could probably drink a cup of coffee. He was too little. Drinking a cup of coffee without taking your phone out at all. Just looking at your surroundings and actually watching the world. I saw this funny, (laughs) I laughed too hard at it. Abby's like, it's not that funny. But I saw this funny meme on the internet, if you know what it is, of all these like folks at a bus stop and every single person was, you know, glued to a phone like real life. And one dude was just standing there looking off in the distance. And the caption said, gross, what's this guy looking at? The world or something? I laughed so hard. She's like, all right, all right, let's move on. 
So, yeah, sit in a public place without your phone. Look at the world around you. Or, or maybe, like, leave your phone at home or in the car when you go out with friends. Or institute some kind of personal no-phone-allowed rule at, like, a dinner table. Or whenever you're in the company of other humans, that's a great one for the love of God during a movie. You know, if you take your phone out during a movie, you hate movies and the people around you. Better yet... Um, you can turn your smartphone into a dumb phone if you want to Google this great article called The Distraction-Free iPhone where you just sort of get rid of all the apps that you know steal your attention and then you lock yourself out of the app store by giving someone else the password. That way you have to feel like a dummy when you go, can you give me the password? I need it back. Like you're some kind of fiend or something. It works. Um, it's fun. Show up early to every appointment and then just sit there and wait. Try it. Um, one thing I like to do is to keep like a small paperback uh, uh, in your coat pocket or in your backpack on your person so that when you're alone and you're, you're like feeling like there's something you need to do urgently, you can actually just read a book for a little while. It slows you down. I don't, for me, it does. It works. Uh, maybe fight those symptoms of hurry sickness. You know, do not evaluate which checkout lane is the absolute fastest by examining them all. Just get in one and go for it. Even if it's going to take a long time, you know what? It probably makes a difference. If two or three minutes, you'll be fine. Um, do not move from lane to lane for the fastest route when you're driving from one place to another. Just pick a lane and drive the speed limit. Try it. It'll calm you down. Here's one. Sit down with an album and listen to it from start to finish while doing nothing else. Just listen to the thing. Or here's a great one. Single task at work. You know, one tab at a time. Do that thing and then go on to the next thing. Or you could write letters or you could journal, or you could call your friends on the phone rather than texting them. There are all sorts of ways to sort of pace yourself, to slow down, to regain some semblance of manageable ebb and flow to the chaos of your life. And to end this evening, I want to talk just once more about the genesis and what I hope will be the eventual outcomes of this vision series centered on practicing the way of Jesus. I realize our church is still young and that we're all over the map in terms of our familiarity with and understanding of Jesus and discipleship to him. Some of you have been following Jesus for years. Others have just met him recently or you're, you're just hearing about him for the first time. I, I realize that these past three months represent the culmination of a great deal of up and down and ebb and flow of painful learning and growing for me personally as a student and apprentice of Jesus. The series itself represents a great many years of, of my own study and experience that were eventually funneled into a new and intense few years as a pastor and a church planter in the midst of um, some wise men and women much smarter and much more experienced and capable than me, establishing this foundation upon their own years of study and experience. And I, I honestly feel so grateful to be able to share this story with, with you guys, to learn what it means to practice the way of Jesus together in Vancouver. And of course, in order for us to do that, in order for us to do these things, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what he did, in order for us to be truly transformed, we, we all have to make changes. It's just an inevitability. If there's one thing I've learned several times over, even as a young, you know, inexperienced pastor, it's that I can't make those changes for you and you can't make those changes for me. And I think we just have to ask, would we like our apprenticeship to Jesus to be one thing amongst many other things or will it become the easy yoke that you share with Jesus? 
there's this fascinating little truth to end with tonight about discipleship. I've, I've waited to bring it up until now, and it, and it has uh, something to do with the word itself. Uh, disciple, in Greek it's this word methetes, which as we've pointed out throughout the series, it can be translated as a disciple or apprentice or a learner. Um, and it's a noun. It's not a verb. And the word appears some 268 times throughout the New Testament. In every case, the word is a noun, not a verb. And yet, when I hear the word used in and around the church, most often it, it appears as a verb. As in, people will ask um, things like, oh, who are you discipling? Or they'll say, uh, you know, something, oh, we're just working on discipling young people or, or however you, you want to use that word. And, and to my estimation, it's kind of the same thing as, as asking like, oh, who are you Christianing? You know, or like, uh, we're just working on Christianing the young people or something like that. Because a disciple is not something that you do, it's something that you are. And, and why does this matter? It matters because when we imagine disciple as a verb, we imagine the term as something that is done to us. And consequently, the onus of responsibility in following Jesus falls on someone other than you a pastor or a mentor or a parent or a friend and so on. And of course, those types of leaders play a contributive role in your development as a disciple. Absolutely, best case scenario anyway. But I can't tell you how often in my few years working in and around the church that I've heard tales of bitterness and cynicism centered around this one particular complaint. No one discipled me. And when we begin to understand the word as a noun, something that we are, the onus of responsibility falls rightly on us. And the invitation of Jesus to discipleship is an invitation to an easy yoke, an unhurried life. And the question that we have to ask to end this series is, will we accept that invitation? Will, will you come with us on that journey? It's not a decision that I can make for you or that you can make for me. We have to decide ourselves. Will we take up the easy yoke or not? So with that question in mind, let's pray together.